Will you outlast your money? Do you stay awake at night worrying about providing for your family? Are you making the right decisions about your investments? There are many life-changing decisions that arise and questions you want answered when going through divorce or after you've received your settlement. This is the Financially Ever After podcast, where you'll hear stories of women like you and get advice from the industry's top professionals. Here's your award-winning and nationally recognized host, Stacey Francis. Welcome to Financially Ever After. Today, my guest is Jamie Weiss from Titler & Titler. She's been practicing family and matrimonial law for over 20 years. She's not your average matrimonial attorney. And that's not just because she attends a weekly boot camp that is really one of the most extreme exercise classes you could ever attend. She's not average in many ways. And part of it is because she is very, very much focused on helping clients finish their case both quickly and efficiently. And she's also comfortable in a courtroom and well-suited to litigate well, when litigation is needed. She represents clients in many diverse matters and finds time to give back by teaching as an adjunct professor at the Benjamin Cardozo School of Law, teaching a course on equitable distribution. She brings a different aspect to divorce using her undergraduate degree from Cornell University, where she majored in human development and family studies. She uses this to help her have her finger on the pulse of the psychological drivers in different scenarios that guide clients to make sometimes good decisions or bad decisions. With this psychological expertise and background, she can better understand clients' wants and needs and help them move to a happier place in their lives. In her free time, Jamie enjoys spending time with her husband, her two sons, enjoys going to the beach, exercising, as we just talked about, and also traveling, something that I know I absolutely adore and love too. Jamie is going to be giving you all those top tips of things you need to do and think about and prepare before you decide to get a divorce. On the financial aspect, she's gonna be talking and giving you tips on how to collect all those financial documents, even if you're not the spouse that's really been on top of the investing, the budgeting. She's going to give you four separate tools that can be used to be able to gain access to those documents, particularly if your spouse is not being compliant. And on the custody aspect, she's going to give you some key tips that will be important to make sure that you have the best chances possible in front of a judge to be able to make your case for custody. And make sure that you stay to the end because she gives us some really important tips on how you can protect yourself from letting information fall into the hands of your spouse, meaning that you could be inadvertently giving your spouse texts, emails, photos, private information through your cell phone, not realizing that you're doing this just by plugging your phone to be recharged. So thank you for tuning in. You're gonna love this episode and get out your pen and paper because we are gonna be going through a lot. So thank you so much for being here, Jamie. We're really interested to hear what brought you to this field and just tell us your story because anyone who is working in the matrimonial field, typically there's something that brought you there. Sure. And I'm so glad to be here today with you. When I started off as a lawyer, I was working in a large firm rotating through different departments and I was very taken with the litigation aspect of the law. 
I was primarily focused on commercial business litigation, but I felt like something was missing. And the funny way that I learned this, the matrimonial area was I started to handle the divorces of my law firm colleagues. There was nobody really in the office who knew how to do it. And I learned how to do it. And I started doing our, what I would call our in-house divorces. And I became the go-to person for matrimonial matters. And I realized that it was really where my passion lies. I have a psychology background and I had really been thinking when I first graduated, should I go the psychology route? Should I go the law route? And I really feel like matrimonial law marries those two interest areas. I like the aspect of it, dealing with people, understanding what the psychology behind the matter is, what's really going on in the case that's preventing closure because matrimonials, unlike business litigation, don't follow a rational path. So if you really want to be effective in handling them and getting them done, you have to really understand the personalities, the psychological factors, the emotions. And if you can work through that effectively with a client, it can be a great tool. Mm-hmm. So that's how I really learned the field. And then I went from the big firm litigation department to working with a very well-known matrimonial lawyer. And then from there to Titler and Titler. And I really love doing it. And I've now been doing it for a long time. But that's my story. And how many years have you been working specifically in matrimonial? It's about 20 years now. Yeah. And before that, I was doing business litigation for about 10 years. And it's a great training for matrimonial because... Another very effective tool in representing people is being comfortable in the courtroom. So having that initial training has has really served me well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. so a lot of women who tune into Financially Ever After haven't really made that decision of whether or not they want to get a divorce, but they're, they're thinking about it. And so what would be some of the things that you want to make sure that they know and do? just starting to get informed and better help them make that decision of, is this the right path for me and my family? Right. Well, there's two aspects to that. Obviously, there's a financial aspect to a divorce and there's a custody aspect to a divorce. So when someone is thinking about it, the first thing I find useful to explore, particularly for people who aren't sure of what they want to do is have you exhausted other options? And when I say that, I mean, it's important to be confident that it's the right decision first and foremost. I think as lawyers, we have a responsibility to make sure that we're not pushing people into situations that they're not ready for. So the first thing that I like to talk about is why are you at this point? Have you thought about counseling? Have you really thought through, is this the end? Do I need to start this process or am I not sure about it? And oftentimes I'll see somebody and then I don't see them for another year or two because they're giving more thought to that issue. In in terms of finances, and you know this all too well from your work, knowledge is really power. It's a very scary situation to be heading into a divorce and Oftentimes, and this applies to both men and women now, one spouse might be the person who's handling the financial life in the relationship. 
And so it's a good idea if you're thinking that a split or a divorce is on the way to start arming yourself with knowledge that you'll need. Get a hold of your tax returns. Get your bank statements together. Start to understand what your budget looks like. Focus on the things that you'll need to know so that you're not at a loss if the process starts. So I suggest to people that they get copies of their records, their tax returns, their bank statements, their credit cards. They sit down and look at what is my spending rate? What is my budget? How much income do I expect to earn after the divorce? Do I know what my spouse earns? Do I know anything about my spouse's livelihood, business? What records can I get about that? Because it's a lot, it's stressful and it helps to have the information at hand. So that's one thing that I suggest. In terms of custody, it's really important to be thinking about your communications with your spouse. When you head into a divorce, I like to tell people, this is open book time and anything that you've written or said, think about it being an exhibit if your case goes to trial. So I like to have a talk with clients about usage of phones, computers, emails, interacting about important things with respect to the children. Those are all good things to get ahead on. The other, yeah. And a question I have when you're talking about usage of phones, computer, emails, are you also talking about going back during the marriage and communication in addition to during the divorce process? I think that If you are heading into a divorce process or considering it, that's the time to start thinking about how you're communicating. Yeah. I'm not suggesting that people have to go back and relook at things they've said over the last however many years, but it's the time to start understanding the issues and being careful about what's being said. Mm -hmm. There is a tendency these days because it's so easy to write a quick note or on by email or a text to say things that you may regret later. Yeah. And it's a good training time to start learning how do I need to do those communications so that they don't come back to harm me. And I imagine it could be saying damning things towards your spouse and being what could be construed as abusive or saying things like you'll never get the children Correct. You know, I hate you. And really thinking about, okay, is this a piece of communication? I feel comfortable going in front of a judge to represent me well. Absolutely. Is that the essential question as you're moving forward? Absolutely. It's important not to be taking positions, admitting things. The courts are very focused, especially with custody. The big issue now is ability to co-parent. And even if you don't have a custody situation where you anticipate making joint decisions or sharing the children 50-50, even if you're not thinking in terms of those terms, there is still an important factor of involving the other parent and co-parenting. So keeping an eye on those things and changing a bit the way you're communicating is important. And sometimes it's just a learning curve. People mean well, and they don't realize how their message is coming across. You know, the other thing to think about, Stacey, in these days where people are living in so many places, 
when divorce becomes an issue on the horizon, an important thing to think about is where. If you have more than one home, for example, in more than one county in New York, it's important to think about where will my action be venued and how do I control that because different counties function differently. And if there is a multi-jurisdictional situation where, say, one person lives in New York, one person is spending time in another state, there's a home in another state, children are going back and forth between different places, what's going to happen if the kids go to a different place for some period of time, that is something that I think it's very important to talk about in early days because if you know the rules about how that works, then you get to control where the divorce is going to take place and what rules are going to impact you. So that's something that's important to discuss. And in a question I have, let's say you have the situation where he's living in Manhattan, she's living in Queens, and they have a Vermont vacation home that they go to once a month for one week. You have those three things. First question, which is the best? (laughs) Assuming they're a higher net worth couple, that would be one. What would be the best if maybe the finances are much lower from that perspective? Did the finances actually play a role into what court you're looking at and the ideal judge you end up with? They do play a role. And I can only speak to New York law. Yeah. If I had that situation, what I would probably want to do is get educated on what the facts of the case are, Mm -hmm. make sure that the possible locations all work. And then if it's an out of state second or third home that makes that state possible as a location for the divorce, I would probably want to get on the horn or have the client get on the horn with a lawyer from that state and talk about it. There is, unfortunately or fortunately, a lot of this does get evaluated when you're thinking about filing. For certain reasons, it may be better to be in New York County. For other reasons, it may be better to be in Suffolk County. Mm -hmm. Shouldn't necessarily work that way, but each department has its own case law. And, you know, the judges are very attuned to the case law in their department. And it is important. I would probably do a little bit of research on that and Mm -hmm. see what the current lay of the land is, how cases with similar circumstances are being evaluated and decided, and be able to give advice to the client on that basis. And establishing jurisdiction, can you potentially establish jurisdiction in a state where you have a vacation home, even though you're not spending much time because it's more advantageous for your case? Or is that something that might be questioned again as part of the whole? It would be questioned. And the first thing that you have to look at when you're trying to establish jurisdiction in a particular state is what are the rules of that state? So in your example, there would be a Vermont statute that says this is what's required for jurisdiction of the case here. Okay. If you meet that threshold issue, then you may have a chance. Then there's probably a secondary analysis if, if, say, the other spouse then files in another state Again, this is a we could spend a day on this, but there are priority rules in terms of each state. First, you have to meet the basic jurisdiction requirements. Then there's a temporal aspect to this. 
And then there could be a contest over which is the more appropriate forum. If children are involved, that's a whole other layer because there are rules about children and where the home state is, and there are arguments that go along with that. But these are certainly things that you have to look at and really understand and evaluate before making a decision. And people do use these tools effectively. Yeah. Now, Jamie, is there an essentially advantage to the person who files first? Because they, when they're filing, are also stating what the jurisdiction is going to be. There is an advantage to having priority. It doesn't rule the day. But for example, if you have some, and there are rules about this too, in terms of what that means to file, do I have to file and serve or just file? But Yes, there is an advantage to having the priority filing. Okay. But it doesn't sound like you've missed the boat from the dock that if one person is filing jurisdiction in X county that you can essentially appeal to have that in another county if it's a better there are, logical fit. Right. There are other rules such as you know, convenience of forum and mm-hmm. where the witnesses will be. And it's not over, over, but there is an advantage to having that priority. Yeah, that makes sense. And I imagine the other advantage is that you've already done your due diligence in the sense that you've gone out there, you've met lawyers, you've talked to lawyers, interviewed lawyers, and found your person, your person that is going to be able to represent you through this so that you're hopefully able to better prepare. And you did a great job of talking a little bit about preparing both for the custody piece of really monitoring the way that you're communicating and thinking best practice of what I feel comfortable this in front of a judge. But you also talked a little bit about the financial. Right. And you threw out some really important things, bank statements, account statements, what you can earn, what your spouse earns, what your budget is essentially anything with a dollar sign in front of it. But I know that there are a good amount of women listening right now, as well as women who have come to you who don't have access to that. And so one of the questions we have is how can we get access? Are there any slippery slopes or lines we should not cross that we would be getting access to that information in an illegal way that could get us in trouble? How do women get this information? Right. Well, there's a few ways to get the information. Finances and divorce are open book. Unlike custody, where we do not do pre-child discovery in New York, the rules about financial disclosure are very broad. So the idea is something, if there's a financial document that's required because it's material and necessary to the action, we have a right to ask for it. We have discovery tools. So for example, if somebody came in to me and didn't really know anything, I might first suggest what's lying around the house, right? So if there are documents that are there, it's open and available, get the documents. Like filing cabinets not locked. Right. If there are have been joint tax returns, you have a right to get your own tax return. So if the person says to their partner or spouse, I'd like my tax returns, they say no. You can call your accountant and say, these are joint tax returns. I'd like to have copies of my tax returns. Those are a very good initial source of information because it gives us information about income. Mm-hmm. It gives us information about businesses. We see the forms that go along with businesses. It shows us what kind of interest and dividend income is being generated. So right there, we have a sense of, okay, there's an account at JP Morgan, there's a Schwab account, there's a this account, there's a that account. 
So that's a very good initial source of information. And then there are discovery tools at our proposal. We serve what's called a notice for discovery and inspection. We can ask for financial records going Mm -hmm. back to Mm -hmm. usually quite a few years. We have the right to ask for that information. There's a very good and easy tool out there that many people don't use, but it's very easy and inexpensive to use, which are subpoenas. So if I am representing a client and I haven't been given access to their bank information, I can serve a subpoena pay J.P. Morgan a relatively modest witness fee, I notify the other side, and at some point soon thereafter, I have those bank records. So in addition to the document discovery, we have the right to take depositions. And if there is a court proceeding, there is a judge monitoring this. So if there are problems along the way, there's the ability to seek court relief. And the deposition that you talked about, some of the tools, number one, look around the house, right? See what's out there, Mm because there's probably a lot there already. Obviously, that tax return giving you information on income, businesses, and actually the names of the institutions, the different companies that are going to hold bank accounts, checking accounts, investment accounts. And if needed, if that material is not being brought over, then you using subpoenas. And the nice thing is, you know exactly what companies that these are located at. So it's a very nice targeted way. But talk a little bit about depositions as a tool and how that can be helpful to get more of this financial information. Right. So depositions involve sitting typically at a table. The witness, let's say the husband in this case, is being questioned under oath. And so the idea of a deposition, Stacy, is you're arming yourself with knowledge so that, number one, you're getting information that might help you understand issues and get a case resolved. Because really, the idea when a client comes in is they want to get a fair result and get the case resolved because it's extremely expensive to litigate a case to the bitter end. So the idea is to ask questions, and these are financially related questions, and it may be information that you don't understand. It may be information that you're asking for because you want to then take somebody else's deposition, who's your accountant, who is your business partner. It may be that it's a lead to other information that you can then get. And it's also understanding what the other person's case is going to be, because the idea is you want to be ready for trial. So you do not want to have a surprise at the end of the case when you have your witness on the witness stand and all of a sudden they're telling you a story or a narrative that you've never heard before and you're not prepared for. So it's all about getting information that you need, being prepared understanding the strengths and weaknesses of your case, understanding what your adversary is going to be saying and bringing to bear on behalf of their client so that you're ready to understand it and address it. So that's what's involved with the deposition. And it usually is also an ability to plug any holes in terms of information and documents that you haven't yet received. Now, one of the concerns I hear women say is, well, he's going to lie. He has not been honest and he's going to say that he doesn't have any bank accounts in Malta or whatever. If that occurs in a deposition, is this a forum where 
essentially, you know, he could be indicted for lying and for perjury? Or is that only done in, let's say, a courtroom? What are the tools to make sure that he's telling the truth? Right. Well, (laughs) that's a good question because oftentimes people, clients, men and women, think there is something hidden and it is difficult to prove or disprove a negative. Yeah. So you can do a couple of things in that respect. You can ask a lot of questions about it. Certainly, if the person lies at a deposition and you can then surface a piece of paper or some document that makes clear that they're lying, that's an extremely effective tool at trial because the person has then lost his or her credibility. The judge is going to scratch his or her head and say, hey, this person is a liar. It's very effective. And that's the purpose of a deposition. The purpose is to be able to lock someone in or prove that they lied. A partial purpose of a deposition, because it's also about gathering information, understanding. In terms of perjury and criminal action, that's a bit out of my purview. I suppose under some criminal statute, there might be an ability to refer it for a look. But in my experience, the use of that information is to be able to say to the judge, either before trial or during the trial, this person has no credibility. And not only should they not be believed on this issue, you should draw an adverse inference against them and deem other things that they're saying incredible because a liar is a liar is a liar. Yeah. So. So with depositions, often your client is being deposed as well. And I've been deposed once in my life. And I will tell you, Jamie, I'm going to be 100%. I did not sleep the night before. I was so nervous. It was interesting. I was being deposed, not necessarily about anything I had done. It was another party and they had a lawsuit against a company and I had to be essentially a character witness and was deposed about that. But even though it had nothing to do with me, I was extremely nervous. How do you work with your clients to get through that without having a nervous breakdown. And I mean, my biggest fear is accidentally saying the wrong thing or saying something that is not actually true completely, maybe because I don't remember. So I just make something up and say, well, maybe it was this. And then that comes back and then bless you're on trial. And that comes out. This is something that I think strikes a lot of fear and anxiety. So how do you coach your clients? Right. Look, the process of divorce and discovery and everything that goes with it is extremely stressful. And what I would say to that, Stacy, is I go back to the preparation and knowledge is power. It's very important when a client is going through this process that you take the time to help them understand what is this going to be about? So what I try to do to help people get comfortable with the process is to, first of all, go over some of the proceedings with them. So, for example, if somebody has put in a net worth statement, let's review what did you do in terms of putting together that net worth statement? How did you compile the information? You put in a motion and an affidavit and you said X, Y, and Z. Let's go back and look at what you said. Let's be prepared. Let's not go in cold. Let's go back over what's been out there thus far so you're refreshed and you feel comfortable with the information. That's for starters. Then I find it very helpful to explain, well, 
like we just talked about, what is the purpose of a deposition? Because it's not supposed to be, to your point, a gotcha or a trick. It's really supposed to be about gathering information. And I explained to them that I'm going to be there and I'm going to be there as your advocate and Mm -hmm. to protect you. And so if something is out of line or inappropriate or going in a direction that's not within the rules of civil procedure of New York, you don't have to worry about that because I know how to deal with that. That's your job. That's my job. (laughs) And I'm going to do my job. Yeah. And so don't worry about that. There is also a process after a deposition is completed where you get your transcript and you have a chance to go through the transcript. So to your point, if you mistakenly made an error and you said something wrong, guess what? You can correct it. So I love it. So it's like this podcast. Right. Like if we need to stop, I love it. That's the best thing. So you can go through and really read through that to make sure that when you said you spent utilities $50 $50 a month, you realized, oh my gosh, I pay $50 every other week. It's really a hundred. So you have that opportunity. And that's right. Um, and sometimes people make mistakes and yeah, it's okay yeah. to say, you know what? Oops. When I wrote that down, I made a mistake and yeah. I'd like to amend it. It's actually this. Thank yeah. you for pointing it out. Yeah. Um, and is it okay to bring documents there? So if you're being asked about your budget and you've you know, really looked into your vacation expenses and you have the details of that, is it okay to bring that as well? I don't typically encourage clients to bring documents to a deposition. I feel like it's the job of the person taking the deposition to have done his or her job and compiled the documents. Anything that you're using at a deposition, the other side's just going to ask you for it. So okay. in some cases, it's fine. You're happy to hand it over. But you're really not there to create spreadsheets or documents. These are questions being asked. If you've done a good job on your budget and you've done a net worth statement, it should be fairly straightforward. And if you've looked back at your credit cards and bank statements to compile it, and that's the answer, unless there's some specific question that the counsel for the other party has to ask you, I don't typically encourage people to bring documents and and elaborate Mm -hmm. with their Mm -hmm. own homemade documents. And within depositions, Can they go to other areas of, could she be asked about a relationship that maybe she has or how she picked up her daughter an hour late from dance because she forgot? Other than the dollar and cents, can it go on that route? And how does someone kind of be able to to, to answer that? You are supposed to limit yourself under the discovery rules in New York to financial issues. Now, having said that, there are ways people get around that, like asking, did you spend money going out with a paramour or a boyfriend or a girlfriend? And did you spend money sleeping at a hotel with so-and-so? Who paid? Did you pay? Did that person pay? And... I have seen in some situations, nastier situations, where people would even try to go beyond the party to a non-party to get that kind of detail. There are limits. You are allowed to ask financial questions about spending if there are waste claims. For example, if somebody took a million dollars of marital money and spent it on a significant other, that's a valid area of questioning But if it crosses a line and it becomes apparent that it's a fishing expedition or it's really meant as harassment, there are some tools in the arsenal to protect against that. You can seek a protective order. 
You can seek a limiting order from the court. There are rules about objections at deposition, but in iffy situations, sometimes you can mark a question for ruling, or I have seen instances, and I've had to do it myself on rare occasions when somebody is really misbehaving at a deposition, where you can halt the deposition and call the court and ask for a deposition conference in a really bad situation where somebody's abusing the deposition power. You can ask for a court-supervised deposition. So there are ways to manage those situations. Yeah, but and you- I think what you're saying is so powerful because, Jamie, what you're actually explaining is that there are rules and regulations of a deposition and your counsel is there to advocate and protect you and you're not on your own and any bad behavior will not be accepted. That's correct. And that's your job as a yeah. lawyer. You yeah. have to be there. This is going to be one of the most stressful times in your client's life. Yeah. And you have to be there to advocate within the bounds of the law, obviously, and support your client. And they have to feel comfortable that you're doing that. And then they can rest easier knowing that they're in good hands. And if you're doing your job, that is really, I think, the most important thing and what separates one lawyer from another lawyer. So it's very important. And you can't really underestimate how stressful the process is. And I sometimes laugh. I call myself an ER doctor because my phone is on all the time and I try to really take calls. And because I know even if it doesn't seem like it's the most critical issue at that very moment for the client, it is a critical issue at that very moment. Yeah. Yeah. You do such a great job of explaining how stressful this is. And so in preparing, really thinking about and preparing on the financial end and then also on the custody of the way that you communicate. Do you have any clients or stories that you want to share of either really did it right or, you know, didn't and you had to pick up the pieces? (laughs) Not that I want to end on a bad note, but I think that sometimes when we talk about real things that happened, it's much more relatable. And at least for me, it's how I tend to learn is through stories. Well, let me think about that one. I think that the (laughs) best stories for me are... The ones where the clients maybe come in and they have a certain point of view, because part of your job as the lawyer is to educate the client about outcomes. You don't want to have a client come in and just say, I want ABC. And then you tell them, well, ABC isn't going to work for you. And they don't accept that or listen to that. So I think the best outcomes for clients are where the client is open and willing to learn Mm-hmm. And to listen and to be reasonable in terms of what the end game is going to look like. Having said that, I had a client once who there was a lot of money at stake and he was steadfast in his position that he wanted to litigate certain issues. He felt very righteous in his point of view and there was a lot on the table, but He felt he was right and his positions were supported by the law with some risk because anytime you're litigating, there's always some risk. And he did not want to settle those issues. And he said to me, I'm prepared to see this thing through to the finish line. And I feel very strongly about this. And you're telling me that this is supportable in the law. And so we tried his case and he won. And I thought, gee, that's great. But you really have to have sort of 
steel interior to do that. Yeah. And also an attorney who can litigate, which I think is really important to know too, because there are some attorneys that are not going to step in a courtroom. And for a client like that, where you can definitely negotiate and come to some decision on other areas, but others where it was really important for him, you know, I don't know if that would have worked. But what I love is that you're so open and honest of saying, you know what, all right, we'll do this, but I want you to know (laughs) you're going to spend a lot of money and there's no guaranteed outcome. Right. right. There's no guarantee. It's what judge we get. It's what day they had, what maybe even whether or not they were able to pick up a coffee on the way to work. I don't know. But right. Like we have a saying that we use at, at our firm, which is litigation is a pendulum. And so you may be very happy one day because it's swinging your way. But you have to understand that the next time it may not be swinging your way. And so it's always best to try to resolve things for the additional reason our judges are overwhelmed Mm-hmm. They see horrible, serious matters day in and day out. So they are not fine-tuning the results in each case. They're doing the best they can under the circumstances of what they know. Only you can fine-tune your result. So if you want to have something very specific to your family, and who wouldn't? Because yeah. everybody wants to have their own yeah. fine-tuned way of managing their own family. If you can avoid outsourcing that, those decisions to somebody else, you're always best off doing so. I find it very rewarding and I take it very seriously because at the end of all of this, there are typically kids to help people understand what the research is, maybe introduce them on the financial end to people like you, help them get informed on the custodial end. There's nothing wrong with having a therapist weigh in somebody who actually can help the people understand like what might be best for your child in this circumstance. That's a wonderful thing, right? We want good outcomes, individualized outcomes that work for people. So I really can't think of a horror story. I'm sitting here trying to rack my brain. That's great though. I don't want to end on a horror story. (laughs) You know, I think what you shared is really important. Number one, if you're thinking about divorce, what you should be doing to prepare The different tools, the different tools that you can use to be able to access some of that financial data that maybe you weren't necessarily privy to in your marriage and the do's and don'ts of, you know, using litigation and not and what it can do for you and sometimes what it can't do for you and anything else that you want to share. I feel like we've covered so much. Right. I mean, I guess there's two things. And the one thing that I would just touch on quickly is in addition to the decision of, are you ready to start a divorce process? There are financial implications to starting an action. And we didn't talk about those. That could be a topic for another day, but we didn't talk about what does filing mean financially? What is marital property? What is separate property? Once there is a filing, Mm -hmm. how do things get handled after that? That is a core question that goes into the hopper of things to think about. The other thing is we all have phones, iPads, computers. When you are embarking on this process, it is important to be mindful of what you're doing. One of the things that I've seen really harm people are shared iCloud accounts, for example. I can't say from a technological standpoint that I'm an expert on how iCloud and Wi-Fi systems get hooked up, but I have seen cases where 
people have their whole household, kids, parents, everybody interconnected on a common iCloud account. And so what happens is you may be getting texts or emails from somebody and then you plug your phone into the computer that sits in the kitchen that everybody uses and you forget that because you have this common iCloud account, everything might now be migrating onto the family computer. And I've seen terrible situations where all of a sudden I have all your pictures, you have all my pictures, I have everything on your phone, you have everything on my phone and parties end up fighting about, oh, did you tamper with my phone? You took my things. And often it's just because of the way things are networked in your household. So thinking about technology and how you're handling your accounts. Do I share an email? Does my spouse have my password? Do I get a new password? Those are all important things to have on the radar screen as you're thinking about the process and going through the process. And again, I can spend the whole day with you on goals and what you can do and what you can't do, but that's a whole other couple of hours. So we will have to plan that. And the other thing I will do is I'll put a link in the show notes just to some definitions of separate versus marital property. And we'll put a couple links of articles talking a little bit more about tech as well as how you can prepare financially for divorce, the financial implications, meaning, you know, having money to pay your retainer and just some of that. So I'll make sure that those pieces are in there. Before we go, how can people contact you, Jamie? What's the best way? So the best way to contact me is either by phone. And my phone number is 212-930-3607 or by email at jlweiss at titler.com. And I will respond right away. And what I'll do too is in our show notes, we'll put your phone number, we'll put your email as well as the website. So that's perfect. So thank you for being thank here. You. It, was, it, was it was great. Thank you for having me. In just a few minutes, I'm going to be going over the main takeaways from today's episode. But before I do that, I want to tell you about our second opinion program. If you're working with an advisor or if you're doing things on your own, you've probably wondered, am I doing it right? Am I best positioned for the market that we're dealing with? Am I best positioned to have a long, happy, healthy, and financially secure life? That's what our second opinion program is all about. We will confirm that you are on track or we'll tell you where things can get better. So please reach out to Francis Financial. Stacy at FrancisFinancial.com is my email. You can also give us a call at 212-374-9008. And today we learned some really important keys, everything about what you need to do to prepare financially, those four key tools that you can use to find information about your finances, even if you haven't necessarily been the one who has been controlling all the finances. Number one, just looking around the house. Number two, getting your joint tax returns and analyzing them to see income, business income, and of course, where all those investment accounts are. If you're concerned about not knowing all the assets, using that overlooked tool of a subpoena, and finally, using a deposition, depositions to ask questions that can lead to other information and really give you more detail into the finances and what the other person's case really is. And custody. As we know, our kids are the most important things in our lives. And so Jamie shared that use this as a teacher that any 
information that you put in an email, in a text, in any written form could be used against you in court. So doing that gut check before you click send of would I feel comfortable if this piece of communication was put in front of a judge. Some really key important pieces. And finally, please do look at the research notes. We have some great articles there to tell you a little bit about some more of those financial implications of starting a divorce, the difference between separate and marital property, and also how you can protect yourself with technology, making sure that your technology is not accidentally working against you. Thank you for tuning into Financially Ever After, and we'll see you in two weeks.